If you spend any time with me and got to know me, you would know that the Old Testament is my passion. It's been that way for a long time since I was Levi's age, sitting in the audience, well, maybe a little bit older than that. Uh, when, I would, when I would hear pastors and my mind would wander, I would open up my Bible and I'd literally read like Judges. And I'd be like, this is so much cooler. Um, I, I love narrative. I love the Old Testament. And I was always drawn to it. And even as a teenager, I would have friends that are being like, oh, I don't like the Old Testament. So I'm like, oh, man, but do you know about J.U.? Do you know about this guy? And they're, they're like, how do you know all these stories? I'm like, man, I just like, I love these stories. Since that time, it has evolved into a love that I, I love seeing the threads and the commonality from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. I love seeing how the Bible ties together. When you begin to see how they all flow together, it gets really exciting and you want to read your Bible because you actually want to see the connections. And so this is part of my goal is to see how does Deuteronomy fit into the greater story of the gospel or the story of God? Because often Deuteronomy, people want to throw out. People don't want to spend time with, with Deuteronomy or Leviticus or these things. It's just like, ah, these are completely irrelevant. Hopefully by the end of this, you'll, you'll see that at least Deuteronomy 30 is very relevant to our lives. The rest of it is as well. Um, so I want to start off by talking about a, a story of marriage. Uh, so when I was pastoring in Alberta, uh, I, I, I started youth pastoring, and I got a phone call one time at, at church, and I picked it up, and, she's, and it was this lady, and she says, well, hello, Pastor David. And I said, hi. She's like, how, how are you doing today? I'm like, I'm doing well. And she said, how is your wonderful, beautiful wife? And I said, oh, Jeannie's doing good. Oh, that's great. And how's your daughter doing? I said, oh, she's doing fine. She's like, oh, we just love you guys so much. And you guys are caring for our teens and such a wonderful... Me, Herb, and I, we pray for you all the time. And we just wanted you to know that you're loved and you're cared. And I was just like, oh, my goodness, you're the greatest person ever. And, uh, and she was just that kind of a lady. Now, she was wheel, wheelchair-bound, she had uh, an air machine, and her husband wasn't able to come to church because he would spend the time caring for her. Now, they literally lived across the alley and two doors up from the church, so they weren't that far from the church, but she was unable to t attend very often on Sunday mornings because of her health concerns. And their marriage was, was a beautiful thing to behold. Uh, it, was, it, it, was, it was amazing. When she, when she passed away, uh, at the funeral, I remember uh, her husband, Herb, was giving this beautiful story of her. And I'll try and do this without tearing up. But uh, at the end, he, he's, he looked at the coffin and he said, I'm going to miss you, babe, and blew a kiss. And probably the first time that I've ever heard an eruption of crying um, within a funeral. I've heard eruptions of cheering and laughter, but I've never heard like collectively an eruption of tears. Just seeing the care and love that he had towards his wife was an incredible thing. See, this, this kind of story, this kind of love and care and attention is something that I think our world and our culture craves. We wanna be cared for and loved for in that, in that sort of a sense. Moses, in our chapter, is calling Israel into a covenantal relationship, a sort of wedding vow um, unlike a wedding uh, sermon, Moses calls attention to the curses and the bad things that will happen, but largely he's saying, choose life. Choose God to be the one that you are married to, the one that you will serve wholeheartedly. 
And uh, we're gonna be coming back to this analogy of marriage quite a few times throughout the sermon. So just kind of keep that in, in the back of your mind. So what is going on with this passage? So Deuteronomy is part of five books called the Pentateuch. It seeks to unpack from creation all the way into Israel coming into their own land, becoming the rise of this nation known as Israel. And coming from a small family, uh, there was like two or three families where it was just a single child, up to 12 sons into a million people. And our passage comes right at the end of the exodus or the exiting of Israel coming out of Egypt after living in Egypt for 400 years. Okay, at the end of the 400 years, they were all slaves and they were being mistreated. And so God sends Moses to go and bring them out. And so they, they, they grew from like 12 boys and one girl into a million people. And Moses, who's Moses? Moses was sent by God to bring Israel out of slavery and out of Egypt. Uh, that whole process is epic, and Hollywood thought so too, and they made a big movie out of it, right? The Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, woohoo. Um, but Moses goes and he draws Israel out, and that whole process of Israel leaving Egypt is incredible. Um, not to spend a lot of time, but but Moses went to Pharaoh, right, the king of Egypt, to say, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. And so God sends plagues on Egypt. Um, and basically, the whole lesson of that, uh, in a nutshell, is for God to teach Egypt that he's in control, that Egypt isn't ultimately in control uh, of the various things that he sends plagues on. And finally, Pharaoh relents after the death of his firstborn son. He says, okay, now leave. Not only does Israel leave Egypt, but Egypt actually funds Israel's leaving. This is like, uh, this is incredible. Basically, they're giving them gold and silver and saying, will you please get out of Egypt? Like, we are done with you guys. Like, so think about this. They're slaves, right? They're, they're building everything, and then they're leaving like filled to the brim with gold and silver and jewels and cattle and possessions and all these things. They leave Egypt in that way. And so they want, they, they get through the desert, right? They get to this river called the Jordan and they freak out. They completely freak out. They, they don't wanna go into it, right? We have, there's, there's 12 spies that go over to take a look at the land. Two of them are like, yes, we can do it. We can take it. The other spies are like, oh, heck no. Like, these guys are huge, we're gonna die, like, this is it, we're done. And so God takes Israel and has them wander through the desert for 40 years, for 40 years, as the people who didn't believe that God would give it to them, as they begin to die off. And so here we are in our passage, they've wandered through the desert for 40 years, and they're back at the Jordan River. Moses, because of something that happened earlier, was not allowed to cross over the Jordan with Israel to experience the promised land, and he was about to die. Moses was about, well, Moses was about, he was at the end of his life. That's the easiest way to put it. There's a little bit of complications when you read through it. But anyways, uh, and Moses is giving a sermon. Deuteronomy, the entire book of Deuteronomy is a sermon. So we have a 34-chapter sermon of Moses recounting the entire time that they were in the desert. So Deuteronomy is a mix of both law 
and also a mix of, of narrative or story of how they wandered through the desert. Uh, it's amazing. The whole thing just comes from, this is the first time that Moses speaks to them from, a, from kind of a, a sermon that he's giving to Israel. The other times it's inscribed, it's law that God gives to Moses, Leviticus and Numbers, but, uh, but, but Moses is preaching to them and he's, he's giving them a history of their wanderings and portions of the law. So the very first verse, we'll look on the screen here, that we see is he says, and when all these things come upon you and the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So he, he makes a specific reference here. He talks about blessing and cursing. And this is a very significant thing. So this is a freebie for you guys. Leviticus 26, okay, it's a book. Uh, it's another part of the five book series. Um, and Deuteronomy 28. These are two chapters that, are, that talk specifically about blessing and cursing. Likely the headings in your Bible will say blessings at Gerizim or something like that, and then the curses. Um, these two things are very specific and prophetic curses that will happen if Israel is disobedient towards God. So here, here's a pro-Bible reading tip for you, okay? So when you're reading through Kings and Chronicles, even portions of judge, uh, Judges, when you're reading through the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Hosea, and those kinds of things, keep two bookmark, bookmark tabs in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Every time judgment is pronounced, go back to them and see if this was already predicted. And you will find out that Israel knew what was coming for like 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, God gave them, like, this is gonna happen. Even the sieges that happened later on when they were being invaded, and it was like, you're gonna eat, you're gonna eat your kids because you're gonna be so hungry. These things are all talked about in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And so that's, that's kind of my, my pro-Bible reading tip for, for the sermon. So our chapter, chapter 30, you'll notice it starts in verse one saying, and when all these things come upon you, all these things being the curses. So me, Moses is presuming that Israel is gonna live in disobedience and God has sent them curses and has scattered them throughout the earth. This is, this is, one, of the th this is one of the punishments that they have. Um, so we're gonna read on in verse two and five. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. And then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you are outcast are in the outermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So again, if we go back one chapter to chapter 29 in Deuteronomy, it helps give important context to why Moses was actually saying this. There's a verse in there that mentions if you ignore the words of the curses and you just, I'm okay, God and I, we're good to go. Um, he ignores it and behaves as though there's no problem. God will send a curse. They will be wiped out because as verse 26 says, they worshiped other gods. So God will spread them across the earth. So here's the thing. Um, this, this, um, this passage 
uh, as I was wrestling through it, I'm like, how do we helpfully uh, help us to understand this idea of obedience and given life and disobedience and given death? Because this is a this is obviously Mo, this is really important for Moses, and one commentary kind of helpfully pointed out at, like through marriage and talked about two pillars like obedience and love. So here's the thing: uh, Jeannie and I we did traditional vows, and for those of you who are going to get married, please do traditional vows because the beautiful thing about them is it reminds all of us who've gone through it what our vows actually were. Again, that's not even my thing. I think some other preacher said that, and I'm like, yeah, that's really good. It reminds us of the promises that we made. And predicated on marriage is obedience and love. These are two things that are extremely important uh, foundations for marriage. Because if I, am, if, I, if I love Jeannie, let's say, well, I do love Jeannie. Let's, let's assume that I love Jeannie, but... The assumption comes in, let's assume that the love is growing, but it's departed from obedience and obedience towards the promises that I made so that I won't care for her in sickness and in health till death do us part. Oh, but I love her so much. I love her so much, but like, I'm not gonna be obedient to the promises that I made. Well, then I'm just presuming light, like I'm just presuming her love is gonna be reciprocated even if I'm not faithful to the promises that I make. That's not really love. But if I decide to simply be obedient to the promises that I make without growing in love, then I'm just, just deciding to just be obedient to the covenant, but I'm not actually growing in my relationship with my wife. It's kind of like, kind of like the thing where, where, where people say, oh, it's like, it's all about relationship. It's not necessarily about religion. And it's like, well, yes, but imagine, again, being married right, and saying, I'm like trying to work through this, and it's just like, oh, don't worry about that, just love your spouse. It'll, you'll figure it out, and it's like, well, that's, how do I love my spouse, right? That becomes the trick, that becomes the thing that's more difficult. So again, this is what we're, if we want to think about this obedience and love thing, if I'm obedient, I need to be obedient to the covenant, and my love of my spouse will help grow, and I want to be obedient to her because my love for her will continue to grow and will prosper. So this is the kind of love and obedience that Moses is calling Israel to. And God promises that he will bring them back. If their hearts are repentant, then no matter where they are, God will bring them back and will restore their fortunes. So when I, again, when I first read this passage, I was like, okay, I think this isn't about religion, but how is this not like religion? Because religion says if I do this and this and this and I obey, then, then God will give me these things. And it seems that this passage is really lending itself towards that. It looks like it's, it's lending itself more to religion, but as I sat with the text more, realized that it's not about religion at all. So here we go. Uh, the next one, it says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live and that uh, you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments which I am commanding you today. Circumcise your hearts and love with all your heart and soul. This doesn't, this doesn't imply religion. What Israel doesn't understand yet in their history where they are at is that they are incapable of living this type of obedience. 
They are incapable of obeying all that the Lord has commanded it because of what comes out of the heart, which is sinful. To put it, to put it more simply, it's impossible for Israel to clean their dirty hearts. So what I mean by that, this is how uh, I, th I think Dwight started using it and maybe he borrowed it from someone else, I don't know. But this idea when we explain to our kids that like your heart is dirty, it's acting out of dirty motives, right? You need Jesus to come along and clean your hearts. So that's how we try and explain it to our kids. And so in the same way, Israel is incapable of cleaning their hearts. Their hearts are dirty because it's stained with sin. Eventually, what we come to know is that it is that this passage right here that we just read, circumcision of their heart, will be eventually fulfilled through Jesus. This implies that it's a work of God to be able to actually circumcise the heart. Uh, in Romans, which is a letter that Paul wrote late, like thousands of years after Moses, uh, and to Colossians, which is a church, uh, letter that Paul wrote to Colossae, Colossians specifically talks about obedience through Jesus is possible because of the cross, and God circumcises our hearts, or he, he roots the sin out of our hearts that bring curse and death. Paul, when he wrote this, knew exactly the type of analogy that he was using. He knew exactly what he was saying when he was saying, circumcise our hearts. He would have known, his readers would be knowing this Deuteronomy passage, saying that, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Paul understood this. Oh, we're now seeing the fulfillment of this promise. To obey the voice of the Lord your God is a work of the Spirit. Israel didn't know yet that they were incapable of being obedient to God. It would be impossible for them to actually be obedient to the law, and not just that, but to actually serve God wholeheartedly in, a way, in, in the way in which Moses was exhorting them to actually do it. And so the same with us. It is impossible for us to be obedient to God without allowing God to work in our hearts to change and transform them. We can't do it. It, it, is, it is impossible. Our hearts are inclined towards sin all the time. So Leviticus, okay, this is, the, this is the book that's largely geared on law. So this is like, this is the one where people sort of gloss over a little bit and they're like, oh my goodness, this is a lot of rules and stuff. But here, here's in the first five chapters of Leviticus, it talks about sacrifices particular. And Leviticus points out to how deep our sin actually goes because there's a sacrifice for people who have committed sin and they know it. So it's just like you willfully did something disobedient to God, you willfully disobeyed the law, there's a sacrifice to atone for that, to ask for forgiveness for sins for this, right? Then the, then the other kind of sacrifice that Leviticus points out is for those things that you didn't realize you did what was wrong, but somebody else recognized it and points it out and like, that was wrong. Okay, I need to go and offer sacrifice for that. But the third kind of sacrifice, well, there's a number of them, but the third type that I wanna bring attention to is to atone for the sin that you didn't realize that you did and nobody else even recognized or realized that you committed a sin as well. So what does that tell us about the nature of our sin? It goes really deep. It goes really deep and we're violating God's law so much that we don't realize we're doing it and the others around us don't even recognize it either. 
because what comes out of the heart is, 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 is sinful. And so we need someone or God to be able to change it. And, and here's the thing. What Moses is saying is obedience is not very far away. It says this, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven uh, for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. Now, when I was thinking about this, the first thing that popped into my head was Indiana Jones, right? Indiana Jones to go find some like relic. Wouldn't that be easier? <laughs> If we could just find some like really great, uh, what is archaeologist? I just like totally forgot what he was. Some like archaeologist guy to like unlock some ancient mystery scroll and go like through some crazy thing. Like we could pay him to go do it, and like okay, when you come back, then we'll finally like be able to achieve world peace. This will be great. Like we'll finally be able to have peace in our hearts. Like you go and find Shangri-La. You go and find the Garden of Eden. You go and unlock this mystery, and you bring it back. For God is saying, you don't have to do that. It's not very far for it. It will be written into your hearts. It will be on your mouths. It will already be there. Moses promises that there will come a time when hearts are circumcised, that God will delight in providing for them, that turning to God won't be hard and it won't be difficult, that it'll actually be in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Again, what Israel didn't understand in this period of history was that this will come in the finished work of Jesus. Now, okay, there were, there were certain characters as you continue reading that begin to understand the heart of God. They begin to understand what the law was for. People like King David. David understood God. He, he unlocked the mystery of the Pentateuch and was just like, it's life. It's a light unto my path and it's a, light, uh, it's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He writes the longest chapter about how much life exists within the law. So there were people who began to understand the heart of God, but we finally began to see it completed in the finished work of Jesus. Israel had to live in a perpetual state or a continual state of offering sacrifices for their sins in order to gain forgiveness for them. But as Israel's history begins to unfold, we learn through different stories and through the prophets what God truly desires of his people. And this is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Jesus says this, somebody asks him, a, a, a teacher, a lawyer, an expert of the law says to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second one is like it, love the neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer's like, yep, you got it. <laughs> Good job, Jesus, right? They're incapable of doing it without him. Hebrews 10, 14 and 18 says this, for by a single offering, he has perfected, do you wanna jump ahead? Uh, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So Hebrews, uh, we don't know who the author is, but he's, he's writing to Jewish people. His audience is a Jewish crowd that knows the law really well. The writer of Hebrews is quoting a prophet. He's quoting Jeremiah. And guess, who Jer- guess what passage Jeremiah is quoting? Deuteronomy 30. The sacrificial system that was instituted was only capable of forgiving sins. It was not capable of changing their hearts, aka the sanctification or sanctify that our passage says, where it says, uh, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, being made holy, being made in the image of God, being changed and transformed into the person who God asks us to be. So, Annabelle has asked to be baptized. And so we sat down and talked about sort of the first thing, which is sin. Because really, you can't, you can't talk to people about Jesus unless they understand what sin is about. And I realized it's actually really challenging to try and teach an eight-year-old what sin is. To actually talk about the depths of sin as being something that is, is intrinsic inside. Uh, shameless plug, if you are not serving, love to have you in kids' ministry. And the thing about that is, if you can explain the gospel to kids, I guarantee you, you can explain the gospel to anybody. Because it's a real challenge to make sure you break complicated theological truths down into something that even an eight-year-old can understand. Um, but anyways, I, I realized, it was like, I, I was asking her, what is, what, what is sin? And she was saying, well, doing bad things. It's like, okay, that's, that's, that's part of it, but it's not the whole thing. And I'm like, oh, man, like, how can we explain that it's like deep inside of us, that it's like from our hearts? And I was like, what if when you're in class and someone wrongs you and you get really angry at them in your head, but you don't actually hit them, have we committed sin? Well, no, but that would be really hard to do. Yeah, it would be. I mean, that, that's, that's the simplest way that I can try and break it down. God wants to get at the motivations. Jesus tells us when he comes and he starts teaching about these things, he says, oh, you haven't committed adultery. Good, I'm glad you resisted the urge to go and sleep with your neighbor's wife. But let me tell you something. If you look at someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Oh, you've resisted the urge to kill somebody. I'm glad you've resisted the urge to murder somebody. But let me tell you this, if you have hate in your heart towards that person, you've already committed murder. So Jesus is saying that like, sin isn't what you think, it's actually much more intrinsic to who you are. It's it's these things inside that even desires to do those things. That's how deep it goes. What's true for Israel is true for us. As we choose to follow and worship God, God changes our hearts to live in obedience to him. We're incapable of serving him ourselves. We need to continually look to the sacrifice of Jesus and he will change and transform the actions of our hearts to become more like his. And the spirit will speak to our hearts and convict us of sin and we get this joy to confess and repent. 
I, I was having a conversation with, a, with, a, with an individual who was feeling guilty about something that they were doing. Everybody else around them, including Christian people, were saying, well, that's not a big deal. Like, you really haven't done anything wrong. You shouldn't feel bad about that. It's just your Christian conscience. And that was even Christians who were saying this. And no, by worldly standards, no. She wasn't doing anything wrong. But the spirit was testifying with her spirit that what she was doing was wrong. And so she said, what, like, what do you think? And I'm like, well, you were sinful. <laughs> you did what was wrong. I just, I felt that I, I was sitting in Deuteronomy as well all week, so that was there. But I was like, no, what you did was wrong. Let me be that voice of conviction. The Holy Spirit was testifying with your spirit, telling you that that situation was wrong. But here's the hope. You don't have to sit in condemnation anymore. You were wrong. You confess. You say, Lord, I'm sorry. I pursued it. I ignored you. Can you forgive me? And guess what? You get forgiveness. It's no longer, it's no longer held against you. David understood this. The guy committed murder and adultery. And he spent his time confessing before the Lord, Psalm 52. Man, if you're ever sitting in conviction, read Psalm 52. Because by the end of it, he's just like a broken and a contrite heart. You will not refuse, Lord. You won't refuse it. So I, I get to have forgiveness. I get to have grace and mercy, even though I've committed this act against you. And so we, there's this choice that's set before Israel. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Throughout Deuteronomy, Moses is begging Israel Love God with everything you have in you. <laughs> love him, love him. There's life, there's blessing, there's everything in there. Love God, please, Israel, understand. Look at our history. Every time we've been disobedient, he's brought destruction, he's brought judgment. Love God. In loving God is life. Love and obedience to God guards our hearts against idolatry which is serving other gods. And he points this specifically, but if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. I think what happens and what happened in, in Deuteronomy 29 as, he, as, as Israel was ignoring the warnings of the curse is what it says, oh, God and I are, are, are okay. I think what happens is, is our hearts desire other things. Our hearts desire other things. And so the, the accusation against Israel was that Israel was mixing belief in God, in Yahweh, with other religions. 
This is the accusation that God has against Israel throughout their history. Have you ever done a study on the gods of Baal or the Canaanite gods? They're disgusting. They are despicable. Like when God uses those words, he's, he's not kidding. Do you know that they have found statues of the deities of the Canaanites and found STDs on them? They venerated people that were living like that. This is why God was so angry against them. This is the accusation. And Israel was mixing in these worship of these gods of Baal in with true worship of Yahweh. And the accusations are, I know I have, there's kids, but you're, you're whoring yourself out to other gods, to other religions. Again, going back to the analogy of marriage, infidelity is something that is, is devastating. It's absolutely devastating. And that's why God, God uses it, because there's, there's no closer intimacy between, than between a husband and a wife. And when that is, is, is destroyed, it's devastating. And so God was devastating when they, when they enter into this covenantal relationship of love and obedience when they go off to other gods. It broke the heart of God. One commentary said this, since for the Israelites, true worship involved total obedience to all that the Lord demanded, it was not possible for them to give allegiance to any other deity. Ironically, by being restricted to worship only the Lord, the Israelites were freed from the difficulty of trying to meet the sometimes conflicting demands of different deities. <laughs> if Israel followed the law that was given to them, they would be spending their time worshiping God literally all the time. They had festivals, like crazy festivals. Israelites had so much time off. Like they had more time off than we could ever imagine. The cycle of rest and enjoyment of things was constant and continually because they just looked to God as their provider for everything. So all they needed to do was just rest and enjoy God, work the crops and work the different things that they were responsible for, and God would send blessing and they would just get to enjoy God. They would have no time to look at any other God because God filled up their time with all this cycle of worship and, and rest and all these kinds of things and things that they had to do. And, and in it came life, and in it came blessing. This offer of life, of life and death, is still in front of us. We have the same warnings that Israel has, the same offer of life and death. Because of Jesus and the sacrifice he made, we no longer need to worship any other gods that we raise up, up above him. I don't need to serve money because he will provide all that I need. I don't need to live as a slave to my possessions. I don't need to do that anymore because God will give me everything that I have need of. I don't have to serve sex anymore because I get all the satisfaction and enjoyment and pleasure from worshiping and serving God. I don't need to, to, to work as a slave to my job because God promised that he would provide for me. These are amazing truths. I don't need to work for the approval of anybody else because I already have the Father's approval. This is the whole thrust of the gospel. We have this life and death thing. I don't need to live with unforgiveness and anger and hurt and bitterness anymore. 
I can give it away freely because Christ has forgiven me. So I don't need to hold on to these things. I don't need to hold on to anger and bitterness. I can give it back to God. I can release my heart from it because God first loved and forgave me. Amen? This is incredible truth. This choice of life and death is still before us today. See, Jesus took all the curses in the death and he took it on himself. And 1 Peter tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we may die to self and live to righteousness for by his wounds we are healed. He took it all on himself and he destroyed it at the cross. And so we get to choose life. We don't have to live in death anymore. He reversed the curse of Adam and Eve in the garden when they decided to live for themselves. He reversed it and said, you get to live for me. It's always been about living for God. Man, if you want this life, just ask for it. You can have it freely. As Israel had, was capable of getting it freely, you can have it freely. As we allow God to change our hearts, that instead of the anger, bitterness, and malice, and hate, and gossip, and things that are in our hearts, instead of those things coming out, envy and greed, we get the fruits of the Spirit. We get patience, kindness, goodness, mercy, love, tenderness, all the fruits of the Spirit we get to have. This gets to flow out of us. And so if this, if this is something that you want today, all you have to do is just ask. Just ask the Lord to be your rescuer and king and you get, you get life. Maybe some of you today need to be reminded of the commitment that you made. You know, sometimes, sometimes as life goes on and as we, we hit difficulties and hardships, we forget. We, we forget about the goodness. We forget about these things. Again, going back to King David, someone who came much later on, uh, like a thousand years or so after our passage is written, David, David writes a, a very poignant verse that has been very um, meaningful for me and is a good reminder. Remind me the joy of my salvation. Remind me the joy of my salvation. Remind me, Lord, the things that I've been freed from. Lord, remind me the thing. This is, this is why I talked about at the beginning the traditional vows. Do it so you can remind those of us who are married what our vows actually are. We can be reminded of those things. And so in the same way with our, our walk with Jesus, sometimes we need the spirit to just rekindle it inside of us. So I'm going to, I'm going to invite the worship team um, as I pray, and then we'll talk about response afterwards. <clears throat> so would you close your eyes and pray? Lord, man, thank you for life. Thank you that we, we get to have you. Lord, this is so exciting. God, I pray that we would be faithful stewards of the life that you have given us and the blessings that you have bestowed upon us, Lord. Lord, for those who don't know you, God, Lord, I pray that today their hearts would be moved towards you, that they could worship you with everything that's inside of them, Lord. Lord, for those of us who have forgotten the joy of our salvation, would you remind us and would you kindle afresh again the, the, the fire inside of us, Lord, 
that, that the wellspring of our hearts is joy and excitement, Lord, that, that the fruits of the Spirit would be evident in our hearts because you've changed and transformed them and you circumcise the hearts, Lord. So change our hearts, transform our hearts, Lord God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.